The teaching text this morning is John 2, 1 through 12. I'm going to put my reading glasses on. Okay. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Cody, love you. Diane, love you. Sorry to be walking on your confetti. Do you want to come get some of this now or I'm just going to, okay, cool, cool, cool. I'm just going to, so good to see all of you. You made it here in 2022. That's an accomplishment. Let's say a prayer. Heavenly Father, I just want to, I want to invite Jesus in uh, to this moment right now. I know you are here, uh, Lord, but I pray that uh, you would hear us in our hearts right now, joined together in faith, inviting you in. Will you come and fill this place? Will you come and speak to us? Will you come and, uh, in the midst of any sorrow or distraction or, um, yeah, just anywhere that our minds and hearts might be other than here, uh, would you just draw us in? Would you, uh... so there's a moment of, of panic in this story, and uh, if you've been around church for a while, or even, you know, not necessarily, like Jesus turning water into wine is a big one. It's like super popular miracle as far as miracles go. Like people love this, this one. Um, but there's, there's a moment of panic in this story, and it might not feel like a big deal uh, to, to us, but if we pay attention to the details, I, I think that we'll see that, that it was a, a pretty big deal. And the moment is, is obvious. It's the moment where they run out, <laughs> where they run out of wine. And not the end of the world, really, uh, but uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's significant enough that Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, is concerned and wants to get Jesus involved 
in this lack, in this, in this running out situation. So we, we, aren't, we aren't shown in the story the exact moment where, where the host first noticed that this was going to happen. But almost all the scholars that you read on, on this text mention that this would have been a, a genuine humiliation for the host. It would have been a humiliating situation for the family to find themselves in. So maybe you can't relate to those exact details, but this is one of those scenarios in life where in a moment, kind of everything changes. You open your inbox before bed, and you know you, 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 sh- you shouldn't be doing this, but there, there you are, and you see an email at the top, and you know you shouldn't open it, but before you even really think about it, you click on it, and, and your eyes sort of scan through, and it's a criticism. Or it's some, some piece of bad news, or maybe you've, you've, you've been misunderstood, and you feel your heart rate pick up. <laughs> And you, you know now sleep has just been pushed back some amount of time, and it's more than you want. You have a new issue on your plate. Or maybe you're packed for a trip, you're about to leave, and there's a faint, the faintest line on the rapid test. <laughs> and you say, does this look like a line to you? And all of a sudden, your trip's in question. You're not going. Maybe you think, this, rela- this relationship that I'm in has been going well. I feel good about it. But you sit down for dinner. You're feeling enthusiastic. But you see the person. You see them starting to try to find the words to say they think it should be over. Oh, you lose a job. Someone else gets the thing that you've been deeply longing for and asking God for, and they get it, and you're like, I'm happy for you. (laughs) In this story, they run out of wine. It's not the same as someone dying. It's not the same as as a tragic diagnosis. It might not be the largest, most life-altering situation, but we do know what it's like. It's embarrassing. Maybe it could have been avoided. Maybe someone should have seen it coming, but here it is. There's this multiple-day party going on, and more than likely, the whole town would have been invited, and it was a serious breach of expectation for them to run out of wine, something that would have would have been talked about for years to come, kind of like a, a little scandal for this family. So we, we are served well when we use our imaginations to enter into these stories. So you can picture this lavish party scene, been going on for a couple of days, but you know, more than likely under some kind of tent. Um, and, and the chief steward is there, the guy who's in charge of, of hosting and the supplies and making sure the party goes on. And maybe he's relaxed even enough now at day three that he's sort of like getting into the music a little bit. And someone comes up to him, one of the caterers working the event, and says, we just started the last jug of wine. And he like snaps and says, you mean last barrel? And they say, no, 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 last jug. You're telling me we're about to run out of wine. You know, do you know that feeling as a human being? <laughs> Your heart sinks. Ugh. You felt this. I mean, 2022 is off to a start. 
You guys feel stomach moment. Like it's like an email, a text, a rapid test. Someone's, someone, every, I feel like everyone I know and me too. Like uh, I was like, we fight, our family just got out of having two kids having COVID. We're like, we're in the clear. I feel like I've had it twice. I'm super immune now. Watch out. I'll go anywhere. And my, my youngest is like, sorry, throwing up in the toilet as I'm leaving this morning. She's like, come on, can we get a break? 2022. I was literally praying on the way here, God, I'm out of wine. I got dirty water. What can you do? And I love and we need Jesus to confront death and face illness and hunger and rage and and unforgiveness. But I think it's something that his first miracle starts here. His first public miracle is in a moment of humiliation of broken plans, of disappointment with something that was meant to be beautiful. A day for memories. And now we're going to struggle to forget this lack. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't even see it at first. Mary does. So she comes and lets him know. She actually intercedes for these people on the verge of humiliation. And we don't know, like there's a bunch of details that we're not exactly given. We don't know why she does this. Maybe, I mean, she's Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's probably true that she just was kind and cared for them and saw what potentially could, you know, be this humiliating experience. We know that she hadn't lived in this town for her entire even married life or life with Jesus. She had lived in Bethlehem for some amount of time, long enough for the Magi to get there. These are the stories that we're looking at here in Epiphany. We know that they had to flee to Egypt to avoid the genocide that Herod perpetrated. And so whenever they came to Galilee, we're not given the exact, but we don't know how it was for them to mix in with this community again. Maybe she knew the feeling of being unwanted and, uh, and, and wanting to belong in a specific place. Maybe she couldn't stand the thought of them being shamed. So she gets involved, and then she gets Jesus involved. This is a story, this is a miracle about what happens when Jesus gets involved. What happens when Jesus gets involved. John is, is, is making a, a big deal about this, about this party extending miracle where Jesus comes through with, we're gonna talk about this later, but it's 180 gallons of wine that he changes, uh, changes for them. And this group has already been at it for quite a while. They've been partying already. I don't know what this does for your picture of Jesus. Like I, growing up in a, in a, in a, a, church, a church in the rural South, like this is, this is maybe the most scandalous miracle we got. Jesus, the party are keeping it going. John says what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he, received, he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. 
John is writing one of the last accounts of Jesus's life. It's the last of the four gospels to be added. The, the, the first three are sometimes called the synoptic because they're, uh, you know, they're, they're so similar. He was a friend of Jesus, an eyewitness. He's making sure the record is really clear about who Jesus is. And so John has in his gospel this series of signs and revelations and statements that Jesus makes that are revealing his glory, which is a church way of saying, showing who he really is in a progressive way throughout the story. And this is the first of the revelations and clues and signs. Jesus invited to a party and keeping that party going by turning sink water into choice vintage. And this, at the beginning of the text, if you notice, it says it begins on the third day, which if you hang around church, super big day. The third day. Just tuck that away. Keep that in your head. So all I want us to do is move through this story and ask ourselves the question, what happens when Jesus gets involved? And we're going to look at, you know, just a couple of quick moments uh, in this story and keep that question in our hearts. So the first is this place of invitation. It's, uh, it's, it's one of the first simple details, the fact that Jesus got invited to this party. And we don't know, it doesn't tell us how close he was to the hosts. Uh, we don't know how long, again, as I said, that his family had been in the area. Maybe this was a courtesy invite. If you've planned a wedding or planned a party like this, you know, like, you have to make that decision. How big is this thing going to be? How many of your cousins are we going to ask? Uh, like, are we going to go all the way to Uncle Sam or... or uh, Uncle Sam, that's a terrible random uncle name to just grab. <laughs> uncle Terry. I'm sorry, Uncle Sam. I want you to invite me to your party. Uh, all right, we're going to forget that happened. I was, this was, I was distracted by the confetti. But maybe, you know, more than likely, we're talking about a small town, and, and, and probably most of the town would have been invited. But I don't want to skip past this. Inviting Jesus in means that all the rest that happens can happen. It starts with this invitation. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. This is important. We don't rush past this. Because John, it, we're in chapter 2 of John's gospel. In chapter 1, some pretty astonishing things were said about this Jesus. If you remember, this is John, how John starts the story. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Would you come to our party, please? The word made flesh, who fills the universe, and yet still gets invited to this neighborhood party, this wedding. Yes, you made and filled the world. Would you please come in here? And I feel like there's a level of cynicism we need to knock off of our hearts to sort of let this just sit as simply as, as it is. I don't think these wedding people, you know, even close to fully knew, you know, who John was trying to reveal Jesus as, but they invited Jesus in. 
however much they knew at all. Maybe just like a person who's Mary's son and we gotta have him. But they invited Jesus in and it changed what happened. As crazy as 2022 is and and. It just feels like we could just like have a big group hug and say, it's so hard right now. But we won't because we're going to distance. Okay, relax. I think we would do so well to just take the simple first stop of this story and invite Jesus into whatever we are doing. Maybe that's the thing you come away with is, is a re-engagement with the, the thought of inviting Jesus in right now today, each morning, each evening, into your conversations, into your relationships, into your creative work, into like just literally what would change in our lives if we just said, I'm going to be intentional about inviting Jesus in. Invitation is a powerful thing. It is one of, one of the powerful gifts in, in the world. There, there, of course, there are many. Some of you have experienced it. You know in your life, in your life story, the power of invitation. But I feel like at, not just our church, but the church at large has been moved off of our enthusiasm for invitation in, in the previous years. And yeah, I am talking about inviting Jesus in, but also our invitation to others. We need to remember how to invite again. Come along into this space with me. Come over. Come, come with me. I'll, I'll come along. Let's see what might happen if we are, we are in this together. I, I promise you that I'm, this whole point is not just a plug for this, but G mentioned Alpha. It, it's, a, it's this space that the whole purpose of it is, to, is hospitality. It's just to have an open, safe, beautiful environment. And right now that is on Zoom. But uh, where we can have honest conversations about the things that matter most. What, what guides your life? What's your picture of the good life? What do you think is most important? Talk about the things in a real meaningful way that we've always tripped over. And one of the beautiful things of doing this over the last five years is when people start to scrape out their hearts and there's a place of hospitality and vulnerability where they can really set the thing that they've been wrestling with, something beautiful happens. Transformation starts to happen. Even if the people don't come away thinking the same or agreeing on everything, there's just a powerful place around this table of conversation, around this space of hospitality where transformation can happen. We need to learn to invite, inviting Jesus in, inviting one another along in our lives. And Mary shows us this powerful picture of intercession. Intercession is such a church word that like means some type of prayer that feels like really intense. All that it is, is trying to connect God and a person, <laughs> trying to connect God and a need. It's Mary's intercession, her standing in the gap as she sees a situation that if Jesus was involved would be transformed and she works to get Jesus involved. And you and I have the opportunity to do that in a powerful way. She makes the problem her problem with care, with compassion, with love, maybe just with noticing. And she invites Jesus to make it his problem. And in the beginning, it seems like Jesus is rude, especially the NIV. He's like, woman, why do you involve me? You're like, Jesus, chill, man. This is your mom. Did you see the Christmas bit? 
It's actually in, in, the, in, the, in the original language, not rude at all. He's, it's more like pleading, like, what, like, why are, like what? my time hasn't come. Like, this isn't my, meant to be my moment. And she's like, actually, it is. <laughs> Such a mom move. Invitation is a, a powerful part of the story. Quite simply, before we move on at all, I love that Jesus shows up where he's invited. He can go wherever he wants, absolutely. I love he shows up where he's invited. I love that he takes the invitation to get involved. Even if it seems like initially he's like sort of reluctant, he responds to intercession. When Jesus is trying to teach his disciples later about, about uh, intercession, he talks about this guy who comes in the middle of the night and just won't stop knocking on the door. And everyone's like, we're asleep, leave. And he's like, no, nah, no, nah, nah, I'm gonna knock until you come. And then eventually comes. He, that's how Jesus says we should pray. It's like, Jesus! <laughs> no, get involved, please. We've been going back through Seinfeld in our, in our house. I feel like I keep catching myself like with little Jerry intonations I don't intend. <laughs> I'm being formed by the culture. I want to be formed by the kingdom. So that's it. I mean, I'm not ending the talk. Of course, you know this if you've been here now, but um, I want to encourage you to invite Jesus in every day. Like, I think that would be a pretty profound thing multiple times a day, invite Jesus in. Not because I think Jesus is constantly trying to bail and you gotta be like, come on back. No, I think there's something powerful about turning our conscious attention to Jesus and saying, uh, be here with me, help me, come in, come Lord Jesus, come Holy Spirit. I know you are here, make me aware that you are here. Have your way. So, invitation. You're, you're a part of the body of Christ. That means you can make Jesus invitations to, to your table, to our church, to, to Alpha. Let's become a place of invitation. I was on a, a Zoom call with some pastors this, uh, this week, and um, one of, another pastor said something that I felt, felt so much resonance with. I've been thinking about it all week, that actually um, that the joy of the church is going to be one of the most profound sources of power and invitation in, in the years to come. Not, not necessarily all of our, 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 our reasoning and apologetic, and, or actually that our joy is our apologetic. It is living the abundant life in Christ in a way that is, is true, that is going to be a massive part of our testimony in the years to come. And I just thought, yes, God has spoken a couple of prophetic words to our church about this reality, that we are a church acquainted with sorrow, but anointed with joy. That's part of the ministry of Jesus, that Jesus was comfortable, or not comfortable, he was familiar with, with the hospital room with the graveside, with the place of grief and agony. He knew that place. He was acquainted with sorrow, but his anointing was an anointing of joy. I believe we, we are called to recover that as, as a church in, in this moment. Even as our numbers get smaller in, in the broader culture, people are always writing think pieces about how the church is, is going away. Let's be a tiny, mighty, shining force of joy that is truly drinking deeply and living the abundant life of Christ and see what he can do with that. Because he did quite a lot with like 12 people. Yes, you guys are in. The clapping means you're in. Woo! 
All right, so then we're gonna see this behind the scenes miracle. So the invitation, and then something actually happens, it's transformative work. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Again, not rude. Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Love that. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet, the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water, which had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Behind the scenes miracle, I want you to notice a couple of details. One I've already mentioned, mom is involved here. I want to tell you, this is one of only two scenes in John's gospel where we have Mary showing up, Jesus and his mother together. Do you know where the next one is? Cross. My hour has not yet come, he says, but the next time we're going to see Jesus and his mother together, his hour has come, and it's at the cross. And this is the first of the signs that revealed his glory. We're going to see it even, even more fully. But she implores Jesus to act, and he does, because that is the place of transformation. And the, the, the hinge point of that transformation is what she says to the servants. Do whatever he tells you to do. It, we talked about this a little bit last week. But there is this magical place in the world where the kingdom of God breaks in when God finds our place in, in our hearts in a place of submission where we're willing to say in faith, tell me what to do, I will do it. We really resist submission. We really don't like, uh, you know, thinking about having to obey. And we don't have to do that to get God's love. But when we come to know God's love and how transformative, how abundant it is, we can come to a place where we say, yes, I will obey. Yes, I will do whatever you tell me. And from there, the miracle proceeds. She implores Jesus to act and he does. Do whatever he tells you is important because what he tells them to do is wild. I, my whole life, I've kind of thought about the miracle like they had this like Brita filtered water and crystal glasses and Jesus was like, touch it with his Harry Potter wand and it all became wine. That is not what happens. That is not the story. These are stone water jars that were used for ceremonial washing. This is not Brita Pure and crystal glasses whatsoever. This is sink water that's halfway down in the jar because he tells them to fill it to the brim. So this is everyone has come in and washed their hands in this water. Maybe washed their face, their neck off. There's grime in this water. I think it's theologically significant that Jesus uses the ceremonial washing um, you know, jars and water and turns that into wine. In, in, in a sense, he's saying this water won't be used for the same thing anymore. Basically, he's saying the way you get clean, the way you get forgiven, the way you get right, the way, the way you come into connection with God is not going to be the same way anymore. I'm giving this water the day off.
at the beginning of Jesus' birth story in Luke, you remember the third shift workers who get let off, to, let off work to come and see Jesus? You remember who they were? You do. You could say, shepherds. You know what these shepherds around Bethlehem were doing? These are, I'm, I'm really, I want participation here. What were the shepherds doing? Herding sacrifices. Jesus lets the people watching the lambs who are uh, sacrificed to atone for people's sins off work in the third shift in the night when these guys could wander off. Now, I'm sure they got some coverage, but this, the theological significance is profound. It's not going to be the blood of these lambs anymore. It's not going to be the water from these ceremonial stone jars anymore. It is theologically significant that Jesus is transforming the way people get clean, get forgiven, connect with God is profoundly theologically significant, but let's be honest, it's also physically significant. This water is dirty. It is not drinkable. I was always like, oh, it's amazing that they, the, the, the master of the banquet doesn't even get one sip of this. This was from the sink. You're going to love it. Very good year for sink water. And so there's this secret. And maybe that's why they don't tell the chief steward because he wouldn't have taken a sip, but the servants know. The miracle is seen first and clearest by the lowest, by the least in power. Jesus saved the day, but the bridegroom is actually the one who gets honored. And the rest of the party is the one who experiences it. This, this moment, maybe not even everyone knew how close to humiliation the family was, and now the party is just going on, and the people who knew about it were the servants. The people out of the way of power, the people out of the way of accolades, the people out of the way of being noticed, and this upside-down, backwards way that the kingdom of God continues to work shows up in this story again. The next little stop in the story I want you to notice is just the sheer abundance. I already mentioned 180 gallons. This is, not, um, this is not a miracle of mere utility. In fact, Jesus says, I want you to um, fill the water jars to the brim. I don't know how much dirty water was in there, but he asked them to fill it all the way to the brim. I don't, I don't know if before service, we were in pre-service prayer, and Whitney, I don't even know if you knew this was the exact story we were on. You probably did. But Whitney was praying, you know, God, would you fill us to the brim today? I was like, do you know where we're headed? Amazing. But I think it's profound. Like, way, 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 way more than they needed. 180 gallons of this incredible wine. And I want to ask you, for this group of people that have already been partying for a while, what does this say to you about God? What does this say to you about Jesus? And if Jesus is the clearest place we can see what God is like as a human being, what are we, what are we learning here by 180 gallons of wine? It's something to do, I think, with abundance. It's not mere utility. It's not just enough to get by. It's not just enough to, to survive this year, as difficult as that is going to be, that actually God is calling us, inviting us, and we're, inviting to, to a, we're invited to a place of abundance. I want you to consider your life for just a moment. 
I was looking back through some of my notes on this story from years ago, and I came across a couple of um, quotes from, from some famous uh, philosophers and, and, and notable atheists in, in our time that have you know, had a lot of uh, books and works out there. And, and I just laid the, these words aside, what we see in this story. Bertrand Russell, a British philosopher and mathematician, a notable atheist, says, says this about the human experience. We are but the outcome of, of accidental collocation of atoms, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruin. Want to come to the wedding, Bertrand? I'll give you one more. Richard Dawkins. Natural selection, the blind, unconscious, automatic process which Darwin discovered and which we we now know is the explanation for the existence and apparently purposeful form of all life has no purpose in mind. It has no mind and no mind's eye. It does not plan for the future. It has no vision, no foresight, no sight at all. You never hear these Reddit weddings, really. That's because The products of natural selection, if that's what we are, we do not live that way. We throw parties. We are laughing and swapping stories down at the pub, or we used to be. We're painting murals. We're writing haiku. We're composing bass lines. We're arranging flowers in a vase. We have the Sistine Chapel. We have Van Gogh's Starry Night. We have Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, because what if... The God behind this finely tuned creation is wildly creative, full of love, who has a heart that is broken over our pain and death. I think about this all the time. Some of you have heard something like this before if you've been around TGC, but God could have had us get nourishment anyway, right? It could have been like you stick a pellet in your ear. That's all you need for 24 hours, then just stick another pellet in. Yeah. Wouldn't that be terrible? What do we have instead? We have taste buds. We have exquisite cuisine. We have feasts. God could have had us propagate the species with an elaborate handshake. (laughs) Too visual? That's fine. Instead, he gives us this this beauty of, 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 of sexual intimacy. God sets up the weak and tells people to take a day off. God is about Sabbath. He demanded that his people throw multiple parties throughout the year to remember what is most important. This type of God, in my opinion, is telling a much, much better story than our world. He's telling a story about a party being kept going, about a wedding feast, about, uh, about painting this masterpiece, about writing this story, about starting this new opportunity, about gathering up someone who is broken, about care. It, it, it's not just the blindness of chance that we're stumbling through and, and, and giving a few corporations our dollars on the way to the grave. No, this is a much, much, much better story. This type of God chooses as his first miracle to show up and turn six stone basins for washing up into fine wine. 
I want to tell you this morning, we are dealing with a God of teeming abundance, a God who promises and delivers abundant life. And now I must caveat, not easy life. Not easy life. Abundant life. Let's invite him in. The last little stopping point is the end of the story where the trust goes for, grows for the disciples. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. It's such an easy thing to just rush past that, but these were his disciples. Didn't they already believe in him? And it, it seems that the trust level grew, that the expectation grew, that the sense of willingness to follow Jesus' invitation, do whatever he tells you, that that, that, that grew in them. Trust, trust for you and I can grow as disciples, as followers of Jesus. When we invite Jesus in, when we experience the type of transformation that he brings, even to the smallest moments of our experience, our, our trust can grow. I love that about the reality of knowing God is that there is no end point I'm never going to come to the point where I, I, I know everything there is to know. I can always keep exploring and coming to know this infinite God. There's all, the best is always truly for the sons and daughters of God and the gospel, always ahead of us. And these are my closing questions. I want to invite you just to think about them to turn them over in your soul. Here they are. One is so simple. Will you invite Jesus in? And yeah, I do mean that if that's the first time you've ever done that. Absolutely. If you've been exploring the idea of, of Jesus and what he has to say and, and you're, you sort of find yourself in a place where you're like, nah, I'm, I'm open to inviting Jesus in. I, I mean that for sure. I also mean it if you feel like you've invited Jesus in multiple times today already. But where are you with that in your heart? I want you to come in, Jesus. And I think it would be powerful in prayer just to go through the spheres and stages of your life, maybe the thought patterns you've been wrestling with, and just invite Jesus in by name to those things. Yeah, he could have filled all of Cana and Galilee. According to John 1, he fills the whole universe and everything is made for him and through him and by him. And yet there's something powerful about the specific invitation. Come here to this place, to this relationship with this child, to this situation I'm dealing with at, at, at my work, to this reality in my larger family. Come in, come in, come in. Will you invite Jesus in? The second is, will you do what he says? And that's maybe even harder. I'd love to have you in, Jesus, if you're gonna sort of rubber stamp. says, even if he's like, I want you to take a little of that sink water and have a sip. No, no, that's absurd. But can we grow in our, in our, in our, in our trust that he is leading us from and to a place of abundance? not just the scarcity mindset of our culture. And that's my last question is, do you believe in abundance in 2022? It feels like a different question than 2019. Yeah, I feel like if I had been like, do you believe in abundance? I could have got a lot of shouted amens. Like now it's like muffled or maybe. 
Do you believe in abundance amidst all of the pain? I want to tell you, church, I don't know how you're feeling. I know a lot of people are exhausted, are grieving, are, are, we need to be taken care of. It's not a simple question, do you believe in abundance? These questions hit the relationship, hit the areas of relationship, trust, and, and hope. And that's what I just want to leave you with considering as we come to the table of communion now. Will you invite Jesus in relationship? Will you do what he says, trust? And will you, can you believe for abundance, hope? Heavenly Father, in the name of the Jesus who keeps parties going, Will you transform the places of our lives where we feel like we just have dirty water to offer? It's just been sitting there. It's stagnant. It's not nice to look at. And you bring life and transformation and turning into, turn it into something entirely different. Will you help us, Jesus, by the Holy Spirit to invite you in? We believe. Help us in our unbelief. Help us to trust you enough to do what you say. And help us as a church to believe you for abundance. Lead us right now by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we just leave those questions on the screen for just, I want to give us just like one full awkward minute of silence. <laughs> for you to think and pray about those questions, and then we're going to take communion together. church as we prepare to receive this meal together I want to invite you if you need the elements to just put your hands up someone will bring, bring them to you um, we're sort of in this representative place longing for the feast uh, but this will do for right now by the grace of our God, adding the Holy Spirit to the reception of this meal right now. To be nourished by grace, that's what we're doing. And I just felt as we were sitting there in silence to say to some of you, um, this whole miracle gets catalyzed by Jesus' mom's intercession. 
She sees a problem, makes it her problem, and then gets Jesus involved by asking him, pleading him to get involved. And, and she, she gets no, no credit whatsoever. So often, our prayers of intercession, they fall like a stone dropping in still water, and the ripples go out, and you have no idea the way those prayers are used, the way those small acts of obedience are used. <laughs> The bridegroom, the chief steward, they don't even know about the miracle. But there's intercession and there's obedience that ripples out and transforms the reality of the situation. I want to encourage some of you who've been in places of, of, of quietly praying for something that hasn't happened, that you have no, no notice of, of movement on it. I want to encourage you in those places of quiet obedience that no one is seeing, that you don't know how they're going to ripple out into transformation in the world. And we're going to take this meal as a deposit of faith today to be nourished by expectation and hope, discipled by abundance instead of discipled by scarcity and lack. And we're going to do it even with these things, these little small communion things. I'm like so ready to break off some bread and dip it in a cup with you guys. But this will do because the, the, the gift of, uh, is the Holy Spirit's blessing and our communion with Jesus. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know what happens to be showing up here? Wine. Is the blood. Is there enough? 180 gallons. Fill it to the brim. There's enough for you, church. There's enough for you. This was the first sign. The next time we see these two together, it's at the cross where his blood is being shed to redeem us. And there's enough to cover the whole world, every tribe, tongue, and nation, church. This little cup represents the abundance of the salvation of Jesus. Let's be nourished. Holy Spirit, fill your people. Bless us as we eat this, this bread and drink this cup. Help us to trust you, invite you in, believe for abundance. In Jesus' name. Church, as you're ready, let's receive the bread. And as you're ready, let's receive the cup. May it overflow. invite you to stand. We're going to sing out praise to our God. There's a couple of spaces of response up here. <coughs> These rugs are not, are not special places per se, but they're places where you can come and pray. People will be here at the front of the room to pray with you. <coughs> Do not leave this room without praying with someone if the Holy Spirit is leading you. Let's worship.